Hello and welcome to Path to Power with me, Matt Cooper. And me, Ivan Yates. Lots of things to talk about this week, but let's start by talking about Sinn Féin in power both sides of the border because they've gotten there in the north, but are the chances of getting to power in the south receding a little bit? Let's start a little bit with what's happening in the north. And I mean, this is massively significant, isn't it, that Sinn Féin is going to have the first minister in Michelle O'Neill. This is an extraordinary outcome. I think Jerry Adams even last week was making the point and he did a special little event in Dublin with Mary Lou MacDonald that when the Good Friday Agreement was signed back in 1998, nobody, nobody could ever have foreseen what's happening happening. Yeah, uh, I, I think what actually happened last week says more about unionism, but I did feel that Mary Lou, you know, in, in the context of migration, a lot of talk about dog whistling. If ever... And I think some of that isn't dog whistling, but the biggest dog whistle I saw was Mary Lou in Stormont saying, we're now in touching distance of a United Ireland. Funny, that what struck rubbish, me what as well. rubbish. That struck me on a couple of bases that I know that is her main political objective. And that's a legitimate political objective to have. But a couple of things struck me as, right, are we really within touching distance of it, as you've just well, alluded to? Plus. But also, the timing of saying that. I mean, yes, there was a success but given the sensitivities of unionism and given that the DUP was having to swallow a lot in actually going in and the Deputy First Minister being subservient to Michelle O'Neill, to then emphasise, well, we haven't just achieved this, we're now within touch and distance of United Ireland, I thought was a interesting Well, I position thought it was a direct dog whistle into South Herman, West Belfast. You know what I mean? Saying, uh, stick with this, we're making progress, not only have we achieved this, and by the way, here's a kick in the groin for for Jer- Sir Jeffrey on the way through. And and because, you know, that is anathema to him. But for me, uh, I, I, what's happening with unionism is is really interesting. First of all, you know, the oldest story in politics, what comes round goes round. We remember 1998, David Trimble uh, leader of the UUP trying to get the Good Friday Agreement through. And who, at that stage, the DUP was against, and who defects from the UUP? Only Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. So we had a situation that they walked out of the Assembly in February 22. There was an election in May 22, and they haven't been back since. And he's Because been- it didn't give them the result they wanted. Yes, and also, you know, basically, we then had the... It was about Brexit ostensibly and trading... So they was, was it really, or was it about the fact that they just couldn't stomach the idea that Sinn Féin would have the First Minister's position, that Sinn Féin were bigger in the Assembly than the UV? Well, but there was nothing they could do about that, given the demographics and the result. But what they said it was about was that... Belfast and Derry should be treated the same as Leeds and Birmingham. You know, that there would be free trade and there would be no border in the Irish Sea. And they had these seven tests. But actually, if you think about it, like Jeffrey Donaldson had nowhere to go. If you think about it, he had to face down Jamie Bryson and Jim McAllister simply because if you are a unionist, you've got to make devolution work. There is no alternative. Like the alternative is direct rule or the real alternative is people say, well, if we don't have representation, we may as well be in some sort of unified Ireland. So therefore, uh, and I think he was naturally a devolutionist and I don't think it suited him to be in that position. And I think we, we, we kind of alluded to this emotional speech he made in Westminster where he received threats or something like that. That's nearly, all, it reminded me of Trimble. That's nearly all 
always a sign I'm going to cross some Rubicon here, lads. And he got it through. But the question I'm not sure is, was a guy called Paul Given was the Deputy First Minister. So in 22, he was elected an MLA, but he's an MP for Lagan Valley. But he opted for staying an MP because you can't do both. Who will be the first min- Deputy First Minister? Who is the... Because it's not going to be Edwin Poots. Well... I'm not getting into that. I can't give you an answer to that. And I suppose I'm more interested in what it means for Sinn Féin's position as well uh, going forward because, and for all the other political parties south of the border, because they've encouraged the return of Stormont, the return of the Assembly and of the Executive, which puts Sinn Féin into position. So if our political parties south of the border are so keen to have Sinn Féin in power north of the border, how could they possibly object to going into coalition with Sinn Féin south of the border? Well, they've always, you know, said this about Mihal Martin. How can you say the DP, DUP must share power yeah. and Fianna Fáil won't share power? Look, let's be clear about it. Uh, the strategists in Fianna Fáil made a huge mistake in the middle of the last election saying no way, no day Sinn Féin. What they will say next time is we will respect the result of the people and we'll talk to everybody. And they're going to shift their position. Why? Why? They want transfers. No, but what is the Sinn Féin power in the next Doyle going to be? Because we've had a really, really interesting week of opinion poll findings, uh, particularly a Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll last week, which suggests that having gone from 25% share of votes in the election in February 2020, a peak last year of 36%, but an erosion throughout the last year, so that now, according to this latest opinion poll, down to 25%. Now, let's take into account margins of error and all that sort of thing. But what was really interesting was when you read in to the granular detail of the poll, it seems to be an erosion of support at every age group across the country, but also that the votes Sinn Féin is losing are not going back to the government parties with the exception of a couple of percent to Fianna Fáil. It's very much up in the air on the anti-government side as to who gets the votes. Right. So a couple of things. Well, first of all, the high point they achieved. So as you said, 24.5% the last election, 2020. In the summer of 22, they went as high as 36%. One in three of those, almost, has proved to be a soft shinner. And that soft shinner has moved away. So they've gone from 36 down to 25%, which is where they were, as you said, at the last election. Now, a couple of things about that. First of all, they're not doing well in Dublin, which is a surprise. Uh, 18% as opposed to Connacht Ulster, 31%. But all all of them are down. And I, I think the instructive bit for me is I was listening to some of the audio around the Ringsend arson and the protests before the arson. And who were they viscerally giving out about? It wasn't Leo or Mihol. It was actually Mary Lou. Where is Mary Lou when we want? In other words, I actually think that it's confirmed now that the the disaffected Sinn Féin has not gone uh, to the two big parties. Because what was instructive for me, if I give you an anecdote to sum up the kind of Sinn Féin vote. Blind Boy was on the Late Late Show with, you know, the plastic over his face, with Alistair Campbell. And Alistair Campbell was saying, you're very fortunate in this country to have such good politicians. They've saved the economy. They're da 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 down. They're very reasonable, good people. And Blind Boy turned around and he said, and this is a phrase I've heard often, two cheeks of the one arse. 
to describe Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And I've heard even the sound of their name sounds like something prehistoric, Irish, that relates to a different era, a different set of problems. So the bad news for the parties, the establishment parties, is that very little of the 11% of the electorate that have moved away from Sinn Féin have gone to those parties. So I think, as you say, and I really think that we now have to pay a little bit more attention to the newly registered political parties of the far right. Yeah, but before we get to that, it it is interesting, Sinn Féin as well, you know, that it can't hold perhaps this opposition to the old establishment parties. And as it tries to move to the centre, it runs the risk of losing some of those who were supporting it in recent times. And this is really evident in relation to the position on Palestine, which is a really difficult one for them because Sinn Féin has shown a remarkable amount of incredibly strong support for Palestine over the years. And it's now caught in this position where it is appalled by the American support for what Israel is doing in Gaza and for the supply of weapons by the American administration. So there we have, for example, next month, the trip by the various politicians to the White House. Joe Biden receives his shamrocks and his water for crystal bowl and stuff. And the government, the Taoiseach, is going to do it. Leo Varadkar has no doubt whatsoever he is going to do it. But Michelle O'Neill will want to be there as First Minister. Mary Lou MacDonald will want to be there. They'll all be in the donut, you know, the they, photograph. Yeah, they'll all want to be there. And, you know, they they had to bring Jerry Adams back out again in relation to this last week, saying we are the strongest supporters of Palestine, but we will go and we will make our voice be heard and they'll tell the Americans what's what. Not that the Americans are going to play the blindest bit of notice to what anyone from Ireland says, but... This is interesting in how then an awful lot of the new Sinn Féin support, which might have been ideologically based, will suddenly go, hang on here a second. We thought you were different. And what you're doing now is exactly the same as the establishment government parties do when they get to Washington. But but the reality check for Sinn Féin on that is they have local elections, uh, probably a general election in Britain. They have the same in the South. They need the American dollars. And so they're going for the money because they will have dinners on the side which will all be fundraising. So for them not to go, I think that outweighs their natural affinity with the people of Gaza and Palestinians insofar as they would see as analogous the minority in Northern Ireland to the plight of the Palestinian well, people. Tell, tell, come back so and talk to me about your investigation into the emergence of the far right in Ireland because this in some happening in Europe to a certain degree is the farming protests that you have in France in particular, but which have now spread into Belgium this week. And uh, Dublin riots start style behaviour around the European Parliament when we had the EU uh, leaders meeting on Thursday in Brussels. There is a belief that some of this has been agitated by the right wing, that they are trying to stir up you know, sometimes legitimate fears on the parts of farmers and concerns and that they are now using this as a leverage. In the way the Dutch happened, and we saw the Dutch had this farmers party mm-hmm. which came forward and That's took right. a significant portion. Of the, could that happen in Ireland, I wonder? Because you said a few weeks ago, you know, farming is now such a small part of the overall Irish economy. Well, well, ju- just on the European thing and the summit and the farmers protest, when we joined... Uh, the EU in 1973, there was more than 20 million farmers in Europe. We're going to go below 6 million. And you know, the one thing politicians do really well is they count. They count votes. And they realise that this is a declining voter base. And the truth of it is, 
in three sentences. The Common Agriculture Policy started out about a food security policy. Then it became direct support, intervention, beef. Income protection. Yeah, and then it moved to the McSharry reforms to farmer support of income and less product support. Now it is moving. In, in, and this is what the farmers don't like, to a common, not agricultural policy, but a common environment policy, which is full of red tape on water quality, on stocking rates, lowering production, organic production, and so on. And they hate this red tape, and that's what those protests are, as well as a huge spike in costs of fertiliser. But it was interesting to see that Macron in France has rolled back on the EU Mercosur deal with yeah. Latin America, and that Leo Varadkar took advantage of what Macron did to come in on the back of it. And I can understand where the farmers are coming from in relation to this, because if they've been required to change their methods or reduce production because of environmental concerns, I think they are quite entitled to say, well, hold on a second, our output will be replaced by stuff coming from Brazil in particular, where they have no environmental or very limited environmental concerns about how they go and do things. And then, of course, you also have the transport of food and stuff. It Does it not make sense if we have better means of production, more environmentally friendly here in Ireland, that we protect it rather than giving it up to those who wouldn't do things as well? Yeah, uh, as you were very quick to remind me, my best mate, uh, Phil Hogan, was actually involved in negotiating in 2019 the Mercosur deal. Yeah, and he, he sold the Irish farmers no, well the river. He thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. But in reality, what it provided for was enhanced trade between the South American countries of Uruguay, Paraguay, but most especially Brazil and Argentina, who export a lot of meat and a lot of beef, and at a cheap cost, like the old New Zealand sheep imports. And the idea was that we would remove tariffs on those imports in return for access for services, tech and so on, from from Europe and pharma and so on. And it did sell the farmers down the river. And, you know, you go to a, a public meeting of farmers, you know, in Kaluni, and they will say at the back of the hall, how does it make sense that I have to reduce my herd when... Uh, the beef herd in Brazil is increasing and it's got to be flown several thousand miles to come here. But yet, isn't the other issue though that for Ireland is the likes of the pharma and the tech are way more important to our economy now. Correct. And the I think somebody was saying to me recently that if you go through a list of all the important sectors, food and drink comes down at around 15th or 16th on the list in mm. Ireland. I didn't think it would be that far down the list. That person may have misinformed me, mm. but whatever the point is. Well, the dairy industry is worth 16 billion. It's a mm-hmm. lot of money. Like that's your cheese, your yogurt, your butter, your milk yeah. powders, as well as the dairy produce. So can I go back to my investigation into the far right? So if you or I decide to stand as an ordinary citizen for election, it's put independent non-party. Yeah. But three new parties have registered with the Electoral Commission. So it's Matt Cooper, this party, that party, the other party. The first one I want to bring your attention to is called Ireland First. It has quite a lot of following. It would describes itself as very Irish-based, centre-right, but Sorry, what do you mean by quite a lot of following? There's just a few small well, dozen people. 3,000 on Twitter, would that be? 3,000 on Twitter, so that could all be bots. No, but they, well, they could be hardcore as well. So on top of Ireland First... Uh, and and some of those purport to be citizen journalists on on that thing. Then you'll recall there was a party, the Irish Freedom Party, that has morphed into the National Party. Uh, that had people like Herman Kelly, who was oh, who we know well from our time when we used to present the Tonight Show together. That he was there. He was 
Nigel Farage is man, and this is going back over a decade. I mean, when Farage first started turning up, even in Ireland, Herman Kelly, who's from Derry, was alongside they him. They want to direct it. You know what I mean? Direct it, God, remember yeah, that? Yeah. I do. What a, what a and that shows how that took off, didn't And, it? and the yeah. third one that I want to bring to your attention is another registered new political party is the Irish people. They they intend to run 160 candidates in the local elections in June. Yeah, actually, well, and there's another one, sure. Your man Michal Collins and Richard O'Donoghue also have... Well, that's the Farmers' Alliance. In, no, yes. Independence for Ireland yes. or something, isn't yes. it? But sure, we've had loads of these things. We've even got gold bar Justin Barrett had his own party as well and he never got a vote that got him near getting elected or anyone else with him. And I think James Reynolds is involved with him as well, who was a candidate. I think he was involved with Renewal at one stage. So, so I was also saying, what, what are the kind of core principles, you know, you might say you're for an enterprise economy or you're for the welfare state or whatever it might be for housing or whatever. Uh, first of all, I think a lot of them were born out of COVID. Anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdown and some anti-bloody of Anti-bloody pr- everything. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, then they, they, there, there certainly is an element in relation to gender uh, homophobic, transphobic, uh, and all of that. They also seem to be quite strong nationalists. We're, we're, we're not saying necessarily any individuals who might be identifiable, people listening to this podcast, are transphobic or racist or whatever. But what we are saying, I think it is fair to say, is that some of the tactics that they engage in in relation to the protests at immigration centres so are, tar- are targeting of individual politicians sticking cameras yeah. in their face. Those so that's just thing. the Burke family, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they did do that, actually. Not Alan Poor Alan Dillon before <laughs> Christmas and whatever. No, yeah. but terms like colonisation and plantation would be phrases that they... Oh, but, but immigration but sorry, has sorry, been a zeitgeist for yeah, them. Yeah, but sorry, that, that large, large part of that, though, as well, I mean, I think most Irish people are too clued in and copped on to buy into things like the great replacement theory. You know, that this idea that I've heard some conspiracy theorists who might subscribe to those type of political parties is that men of military age are being located around the country so that when the call comes that they can rise up and take possession of the country. That's the level of nonsense and it's the people who were involved in the anti-vax campaigns are the same people I know who are doing that sort of stuff. So I think it's but a the, large degree of nonsense that 99% of the Irish voters will reject. Well, I'll just say this to you. In Dublin especially, in inner city areas, in working class areas, these people are starting to appear on my radar that they're getting traction. And that's why Sinn Féin has lost support. OK, they get a certain degree of traction, I think, but I think it's going to be small. So hopefully, maybe I'm being naive, but I think it'll be small. But but you know what the most laughable thing? That I just I just have to sit back and say, fair juice. So here you have the government coming on programs like The Last Word, and I will mention the book as well. But the point about <laughs> it is that they're coming on these programs to defend their stance on migration. But look, Paul Daniels, this is what I'm doing with my right hand. But with my left hand, I'm making something Sorry, disappear. Do you not think this was an extraordinary week when it comes to an about change on immigration That's policy? Going, Carry on. I think this was absolutely fascinating. I mean, we're not chartering flights to dump people in Rwanda, but we're heading in a similar absolutely. direction. And, you know, this is... 
perhaps one of the cleverest things that the government has done quietly, letting it be known. And you know, we talk about the timing of the election. I tell you one thing, I do not think there will be a general election until we have seen photographs of a regular <laughs> series of privately chartered flights <laughs> heading out of the country and uh, bringing people back to whence they came yeah, from. Right? But if you actually look at this, this is the U-turn of all U-turns. And they've done it kind of furtively. First of all, Heather Humphreys has swung into action. Uh, so, an Ukrainian comes here and they get 232. Well, sorry, lads, we're only going to give you less than 40 euro. Uh, we, we may actually take away your nine month medical card in due course and we're going to restrict your, your HAP entitlement for, for housing benefit. Then, then, then they turn around and, as you say, well, the self portation, the self deportation isn't really working. We're going to do this. And I'm actually told by someone who does the interviews for the INIS, you know, so you yes. apply that actually, the majority of people fly into Belfast and get down mm. through a porous border. They don't actually present at a sea or airport in, in this jurisdiction. So Which they, it's just given rise to this, uh, but it does happen occasionally, but it doesn't happen as much as people say about people destroying their passports on flights into Dublin Airport and whatever. That doesn't happen. What's happening is they are coming in via the north and over the border. So next thing they, 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 they do is they say, we're not going to sign any new contracts with hotels or anyone else. Next thing they say, we're going to sign up to the EU Pact on Migration. In other words, we ain't going to take them. We're going to pay a check instead. And then they, they cap it all. They say, a lot of talk about Algerians around the country. Algeria and Botswana now are on the safe list. They're not entitled to asylum. So really what they've actually done is through a series of departments, justice, welfare, social protection and others, they've actually done the biggest U-turn of all time and not a headline about it. Well, you know, what's the line out of Father Ted? I hear you're a racist now, Father. I don't know whether you can actually apply that to the government. I hear you're racist now, government. They're not. And they're not far right. But what they are been doing is practical, I think, in that, you know, we have accommodated an enormous number of Ukrainian people. We have done very, very well. And it has been done for the most part without too much controversy. Unfortunately, many of those who have complained complain about the people who are coming into the International Refugee Programme because, let's face it, they don't like their skin colour. Do you think it's as simple as that? And you think they prefer Ukrainians and East Europeans to that? Because they're white. Right. Right. Well, put it like this. You could be right. I, I, I don't know enough about it. But what I, what I do know is this. It is the U-turn of all U-turns. And if you look... Good politics, though, is it? Oh, sorry. This is manna from heaven for Sinn Féin. See, this this is, will make this problem go away. Yeah, for, for the government rather yeah, than well, for, for Sinn Féin. No, for everybody. For, for everybody. everybody. Yeah, but I, it makes me wonder that, you know, when we talk about the timing of the election, and some people are saying now because of Sinn Féin's apparent difficulties in the polls, and I also believe you shouldn't read too much into the polls because the whole different dynamic happens during election campaign as we saw the last time round. But there are some people saying that, you know, miss might persuade the government to go early, to go in and June. A few so. people text me over the weekend and say, any thoughts Leo heard about going early with the demise of yeah. Sinn Féin and Soft Sinner yeah. and all that? This would accelerate that. It might, but I also think the things that come into, you need to see the flights going out first and we know yeah, the way these yeah. things happen. You need to see more of the detention centres being built or at least the planning yeah. in place. You also need the cost of living crisis to ease a little bit further. Um, interest rates falling from about the middle of the year will actually help and the budget. Up. I still think that we're heading the autumn towards is the more autumn, likely, yeah. more likely. I really don't see it well, coming earlier. like this, I think that is the Fianna Fáil uh, uh, position. Uh, the one other thing I would say about the polls is this, that if the soft shinner has gone 
uh, to the far right. And as you said, actually, they won't get a quota. There is a prospect they'll transfer back. Do you understand me? So, like, would also be mu- they could transfer all over the place. They could, no, but like, but when you get down to the last seat in a multi-seat yeah. constituency, if there's a Sinn Féin candidate and there's a Fine Gael candidate, this disaffected soft Shinner might come back to Sinn Féin. So all is not lost for them on that. Okay, could I actually bring you to those of some of the things that are maybe causing a little bit of divisions within the government as well? The, the, the other problems, if maybe they have come up with a plan to deal with immigration. What about dealing with things like RTE, our stamp duty on businesses buying houses, our VAT for the hospitality sector and small business closures. Let's just talk a little bit about those things for a little while. Um, what about the latest on RTE and uh, the revelations of this um, redundancy deal for the chief financial officer who actually was replaced? I mean, my understanding of the laws in relation to redundancy is you're not actually making the person redundant, you're making the position redundant but they didn't make the position redundant. So there it is. RT broke, cap in hand to the government begging for money and over 400 grand goes to somebody who's effectively taking an early retirement, funded as if it's redundancy and somebody else comes in to take the job. Uh, replaced by another CFO at 200 grand a year. It is, it is beyond belief. Do you remember something that happened 13 years ago? Uh, in a place called Chatham in Cape Cod in near Boston, Charlie Bird, our intrepid reporter, landed up at the house of David, <laughs> David Trump. Trump, the former chief executive of Anglo Irish. I've just been wondering: uh, would anyone in RTE <laughs> or would Gavin Riley go to Cork and find the home in Clandor. of D Forbes and actually knock on the door and say, "Can we have a word, please?" Do you remember that he was behind the door, and I think. She, you know, I used to watch in my childhood, uh, kind of Hawaii Five Over, and, and the, the the lead guy book, say, him Dano. book him Dano and put out an APB. We need an APB. Like she can't even give a written a written deposition of answers. She is the most wanted person in Ireland, and I want to know why the the media, the central establishment media like yourself, are sitting on their hands and not knocking on our door. But don't we have to be respectful of the fact that she has declared that she? Is is medically unfit to make appearances or answer questions. Well, I'd probe that a little bit too. Is she hospitalised? What exactly is the nature of this illness? Is that not private? I mean, if you have an illness, unless you decide to disclose it publicly... Here was a guy I thought was feet to the fire, transparency, accountability, and you're dropping the ball. I, that's a, it's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it like that. But actually, the interesting thing about David Drum, and there is a distinction that has to be done, David Drum then faced criminal charges in relation to his conduct and behaviour at Anglo-Irish Bank. You're defending D. No, Forbes. I'm not, I thought you were, you were writing articles about it. I'm defending D. Forbes, and I am writing for the Business Post this Sunday about it. There's my little plug. But there is a difference between something that is criminal and nobody, nobody is alleging that anything that happens in our like this, this is, is the latest, uh, in fairness, Matt, this is the latest episode. Oh, it's where, outrageous. Where, sorry, all the culpability finger is not the executive board, it's not the main board, it's actually D. Forbes. And when do we reach a point where we say, this is so critical to the public, but you know what really got on my goat this week? So I have observed, respected and even given support to Leo Varadkar. And I remember a time when he came into the doll around 07 and Leo was the future. A Leo that was and a Leo that's now would never turn around and say the state should fully fund uh, should fully fund RT. I actually think 
I'd nearly referred that file to the DPP. I was so angered by what he said about that. So, first of all, the it's listen, not a criminal no, no, offence. No, well, sorry, to well, say in that. my mind, it's a political <laughs> offence. How you could lose your marbles about? It. Let me let me just explain. So, before this all kicked off with, with Ryan and all that kind of stuff, about 190, 200 million was collected by the Lions, uh TV license. He's now saying we're going to abolish as part of a populist measure, and the state will take on that. So, effectively, we're talking about a minimum of 200 million of a license fee is now going to be paid by the, the, the exchequer. But actually, we've got to add on the losses that they were making because they needed dollops of cash for COVID. They got 56 million, which is well, you know, before the license problems arose. So actually, what they're probably saying is, and sorry, this is on top of 54 million to TG Car. Like, sorry, Leo, I'm very, very sorry. But you know what you should do? Take your 250 million and put it into childcare. Introduce for every four-year-old in the country free childcare. You'd be doing something for a future generation. You'd actually put a proper structure around the crash facilities. You'd be getting in line with Europe. Please do not put it into the bottomless pit that's RT. Okay. Actually, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of days and something sort of struck me late last night that we're having the wrong discussion at present in relation to RTE, that we're having a discussion about the nature of the funding of it. Now, let me just take that briefly for a second. Uh, they had the political cover 18 months ago, the Future of Media Commission report, which they belatedly published, having sat in it for a year, which gave them the option of abolishing the licence fee and going to full exchequer funding, which they rejected. So, a lot has changed in the 18 months mm. since then in Leo Varadkar's position, although it looks like Michal Martin, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath are very, very reluctant to actually make that change to commit the government to spending $200 million a year, believing that there are other things that that money could be spent on. And the second thing in relation to that is there's this perception that the government doesn't want to be seen to be funding RT for then having undue influence over it. You know, there's a little bit of crap in relation to that because as it happens, one third of the licence fee already comes from the Department of Social Welfare. It yep. covers those the free, TV the free TV licences. So, so what's already, the central sorry, point so you're making? Hold on. So that already has a major, there is a major financial influence. There's the 16 million they had to throw in last year to bail it out. Technically, as you've pointed out, RT would be insolvent without the support of the government. There's another 40 million going in this year, despite the fact that there is minimal change actually taking place. There's, if a private enterprise was in the type of financial trouble that RT is in, it would be moving far faster and far more ruthlessly to deal with the issues and to put itself on the correct footing. And this is the point I'm getting to, which suddenly struck me last night when I was preparing a piece for the Business Post for Sunday. Okay. It's the back page, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is, we're talking, the argument at the moment in political circles is all about how the money goes to RTE. The argument should be, what is RTE for? If you were constructing RTE now, what would you actually put together? What would you expect it to do? News and current affairs, yes, but actually there's an awful lot in the commercial sector who are doing that as well. Documentaries, yes, because the commercial sector will not do the type of documentaries. Entertainment shows that are Irish in nature that won't be given there on Netflix or those. Yes, there's an argument for funding all of that. But how much of all the other things and how much, how much of what the rescue of RT is about rescuing the, serving the institution and the people employed in it rather than serving the people who pay for it? Yeah, I, I, first, I, I just am so bitterly disappointed 
that Leo has fallen for this Catherine Martin Department of Arts uh, argument that we nationalise this. It will kill any reform. You're absolutely right. The real accelerant is the market, the broadcasting landscape that will force RT into change. If we nationalise it, that'll all stop. And there will be the same feather bedding. There'll be the same waste. But now hold on a second. You say entertainment there. Say I like a programme like First Dates or I like Dancing with the Stars or the other rubbish they emit out or the the rebroadcast stuff they do, you know, back series of Dynasty or whatever it might be. The truth is, that is not in the public interest. That is not public service broadcasting. That's public sector broadcasting. And actually, it's distorting the market and it should be let to wither on the vine. But look, I'll give you another example. You know, RT's, everyone gives out about Toy Show the Musical and the losses it made. Now, it went to do that because it was desperate for additional income streams. But when you think about it, again, what was the public service involved in having a musical? It was a strictly commercial venture. But also, you know, why did it actually go beyond the remit of broadcasting? And also, what about the damage it was likely to do to those in the private sector who were in theatres and in producing pantomimes that they suddenly had this behemoth coming that looked as if it was going to do it? And I'll give you one other example of the things how RT has expanded. Can you imagine if 25 years ago, when you were in government at the time when the Irish press group collapsed, Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if RT had come along and said, well, do you know what we'll do? We'll bring out a morning, evening and Sunday newspaper and we'll use our resources in RT in the newsroom. There would have been absolutely no way. You cannot do that. That is completely inappropriate. But what has happened? RT has set up a website. So as all the newspaper industry has struggled with the move to digital, it has found itself in competition with the biggest audience website in the country now is RTE. A little irony on that. So I, I, when the story broke about uh, Brida O'Keefe, was it, and the yes. 400 grand, I actually missed it because I was busy that day and I, I went on the websites to check the story. And I went on the RTE website and I trolled, I, I scrolled through all the pages and I didn't find one reference to it. Well, and not surprising. only are they not sending someone to Cork to find out, to ferret out uh, D Forbes, they have actually been very partial in their coverage of RTE. Well, there are some people who say that they've probably overdone the self-flagellation in relation to it. But anyway, that that's another issue. But uh, Leo is a disappointment. Like He actually... I don't know whether he's become institutionalised by 14 years of of continuous government, but he's actually lost all the original thinking that he was there to get for those who are up early in the morning, for taxpayers. He has lost any sense of responsibility. Well, then, what about the difference between him and Fianna Fáil on the VAT rate for the hospitality sector? Well, actually, I think this is a real issue. The issue is not just the 9%, uh, 13% for hospitality, which is a live issue. There's the tax legacy issue from COVID, 1.9 billion for 60,000 small businesses. Well, now that's going to be extended for years and years to come. That'll be written off on a very slow basis. You you have costs of heating and now the labour rates have gone up, the minimum wage and so on, all hitting the same sector of small businesses that can't pass on some of these increases. So I think what you're going to see is actually quite a lot of closures, a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain. And actually you're going to see, believe it or not, in around April, May, a package for small businesses that's going to deal with the VAT issue. They probably leave hotels out of it and go for the coffee shops and, you know, maybe just where you rest, sit down. Restaurants down. and coffee shops where food and not is served. Food, but, not but, takeaway. And yeah, and have, a, and have a differentiation with the hotels because we all know the hotels are doing well. Yeah. 
in the most well, in Dublin, they're doing well. In yeah. Dublin, the others, the rest are full of immigrants. You know, down the country. <laughs> That's in slight exaggeration, <laughs> but anyway, yes. Well, in Ross Grey, anyway. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, but put it like this, I do think, uh, you know, underneath the surface, there is agitation building up uh, of quite a lot of silent pain by business people. And look, they, they don't have huge political clout, but they are actually not able to make ends meet. And I think there will be, a, you know, they dress it up as a package. You know, there will be like they used to always say that for the farmers we'd do a package So the other thing actually I didn't mention earlier which another reason why I think the government will want to try and hold out in the election as much as possible is they want as many houses built as possible between now and year end before they go to the polls and clearly even at 33,000 per annum that we're up to it's not as much as we need I think the government this week conceded something that we've been banging on about in this podcast and elsewhere that the need is for 50,000 a year and they're going to have to do that but I wonder then um, how annoyed the government must be about how the likes of Ryanair deciding to buy the bulk of a housing estate out in Swords or there's another another aviation company down in Shannon which is also taking over an estate which actually led somebody to actually ask me will the locals down there go and complain about these unvetted foreigners coming into the country taking those houses as because they're supplied by an employer in the same way that they complain about so-called unvetted foreigners going into state-supplied houses. Well, few few thing, things about that. First of all, I, my understanding is all over the world, Emirates and Etihad do this for their employees. There is absolutely nothing abnormal. And I remember back in the day in, in, in farms, you know, they would have labourers' cottages on the farm. So there's absolutely nothing either wrong with this. Now, people want to raise the stamp duty for bulk buying. I think if you buy more than 10 units or whatever it is, you pay 10% uh, stamp duty yeah. on it, whereas an ordinary person would not pay that. Or uh, they want to raise that to 17% in the case of Sinn Féin. So first of all, I, I see nothing wrong with that. But I, a little birdie told me that an earthquake is happening in government, in, sorry, in the permanent government. And this is called the NPF. What, Ivan? The National Planning Framework. So my friends in CIF, Construction Industry Federation, have been banging on to say the whole national development plan is based on a 2016 census of population Totally out of date. Yes. So we, we now have hundreds of thousands more people before the Ukrainians arrived. And my understand that the penny has now dropped and they're now looking at kind of 10 big sites with up to 6,000 houses, but also on things like wind farms and so on, they're going to change the planning directive to get the four gigawatts of onshore wind energy and so on. So the, the, the difficulty is this. There's a general feeling in government in the civil service that the working date is up to the end of May. And after that, the civil servants stand back and say, I don't know who my new boss is going to be. You know what? We'll lie on the shovel here a bit because the new government has run out of, a, uh, the old government has run out of a mandate. So therefore, there's a de facto deadline to get all these measures through. But the point I'm trying to make is this. This national planning framework guidelines will feed into every single county development plan. So if you take Kildare or Wicklow that have said in Nace, in Newbridge, in Greystones, no more houses to be built, they'll be told, uh-uh, you've got to go change that. And I think this is absolutely fundamental. See, I've been lobbying for two years on this, that this is expedited. And just coming to your point about Dublin Airport, I think it has to be said, that issue, planning and development bill, I actually think... The Greens in government, while they've done a lot of good things, you know, the bottle's been recycled. It's like driving a car with the handbrake on if you want to have development in this country. And actually, they have, they're, they, they're, like, like, 
Untashka represents the haves in society, not the have-nots. The Green Party represents the haves, and they have stopped a lot of these developments, erring on the side of maximum okay. development. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about this. We we did mention it before about this planning application made by the DAA to extend Dublin Airport at present. And it's not, not for environmental reasons in relation to the carbon footprint of the aircraft that there's this 32 million passenger limit. It's about road access, actually, into the airport itself. On current projections, you could, by 2040, with population trends, need about 46 million people a year going through the airport. What the DAA has applied for is to do various infrastructural work all around the campus that will allow them to take 40 million people a year. Now, Fine Gael is in favour of it. Leo Varadkar effectively has said that he wants this to go ahead. The Greens are against it and some of their TDs and MEPs have lodged planning objections. So these are both. I don't know how you square the circle on this one because clearly if you have environmental concerns, you want to try and limit the amount of carbon emitted by flying. On the other hand, if you want to maintain economic development, you have to let this grow. You also have to take into account politically, Irish people love their holidays and they love taking their flights. But is there perhaps a way around this in saying that putting the limits on Dublin Airport, build up Shannon, Cork, Knock, even Kerry, Waterford airports, or is that in itself, you know, that would be good maybe for regional development, but do the airlines want to go there? And is it even counterproductive to provide other places for creating more carbon if you put a limit on Dublin? What have I told you is the basic philosophy of, of, of politics and any business. Find out what the people want and give it to them. They don't want to go to Farron 4. They don't want to go to Galway, Shannon or whatever. I'm sorry, man. They want to come to the capital city. There's no, no, no. Terry, the reason they have to come to Dublin is, is because that's where the airlines are providing the services from. Or if they were to get a flight out of Cork or Shannon, say, to Spain, they often find that they're charged more. No, you can do your sums because you might actually be able to get parking at Shannon Airport or Cork Airport that you can't get in Dublin. And when you actually balance everything out, it could still be cheaper to go. In fairness, but you're rarely in Ireland at the weekend. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> you love your sunny breaks. You and Aileen uh, trot off. I'm stuck in Camolan. But anyway, carry well, on. <laughs> yeah, but, but the, the point is, this is a big bugbear for people. And, you know, I think this is going to be one of these issues that will be difficult for the competing But do, do you get my, my central political point is that, that in the, the, the what used to be smoke-filled rooms and, and the Sycamore Room in, in government buildings, the Green Party on those issues, whether it's housing guidelines, density, whether it's the issue of Dublin Airport, they have been the ones who've been closest to the objector culture. And actually, it has really reinforced the inertia of government where a project now takes 15 years instead of eight years. And to be honest with you, like I have a vision of Ireland that it's the Singapore economically of, of Europe, that we are actually a great success story, standards of living rise, that we're all working and, 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 and have a winsome game. But then we have all the, the kind of naysayers. Okay, well, just seeing you've been slagging me for my occasional trip out of the country <laughs> at I've weekends. I've been keeping a record of it. <laughs> Matt's not available this week. You, you ring his phone, he's not available. He's in Honolulu this week. Yeah, I thought, don't say Honolulu, that's where Aileen really wants to go and I've never brought her. But that brings me to, though, when you were a government minister and when I travel out of the country, at least I'm paying my own way, 
when you were a government minister, where did you go for St. Patrick's Day? I nearly always coincided. Like that was the third week of the month, the 17th, yeah. that there would be an agricultural council meeting and I would go to Brussels. And You went but, to Cheltenham, I'd say. No, 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 no sorry. I wish, <laughs> no, but actually what I did was I actually said, I'm so busy going to the Wexford and Escorthia and New Ross Patrick's Day parades. I actually want to be seen around the constituency because there'd be great crowds out and that. I was actually saying, you can go where you like, but I'm staying home. So hold on. Does that mean, and the horror of the idea, that the rest of the cabinet effectively left the country and left you at home <laughs> where you might have been essentially in charge? No, no, Where you no, could have had a no, coup? No, in my day, the likes of Dick Spring and, 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 and John Bruton were control freaks. Even if they left the country, they were still in charge. Uh, no, but the, the, the exodus has become a hoary old chestnut in terms Is of it, this. Do you think it's sort of a worthwhile thing to do for the, almost the entire government and all the junior ministers to go all the way around the world. And when you consider, I mean, I don't know what Eamon Ryan is thinking. Why doesn't he take some of the more nearby places instead of going last year to China and this year to Brazil, which immediately brings all the flack upon him? What are your air miles? Look, there are 40 million Americans who claim to be some sort of plastic paddy or Irish uh, heritage. Definitely there is no one gets the access into Washington and Capitol Hill that we get. That is money well spent. Some of the places they're going to, give me a break. You know what they do? They go to an embassy reception, they'd shake a few hands. They have no impact on the local population at all. That's how it doesn't strike me as fun. And given that your expenses are so closely monitored (laughs) as well, why would you want to do that? Well, Well, I would say the point is this. You look at people going to Taiwan or going to New Zealand or going to far flung places they might never get the opportunity to go again. So they're doing it at the expense of the state. To see see the Irish embassy in these places? Ah, People love that. You know what I mean? Some of these are glorified county councillors we're talking about. Okay, listen, we better call a halt there. We didn't get a chance to talk again about foreign politics, Brexit and the UK. I want to talk about UK politics, seriously, because like what's happening over there is really, really going to impact on us. A 27-point lead for Keir Okay, can I promise that we'll do it next week? And the other thing I want to talk about is... What's gone wrong with Fianna Fáil? Because where all the focus is on Sinn Féin, why for two years have Fianna Fáil been stuck between 15 and 17%? In your lifetime and in mine, they were always the largest party. Next week. We'll do it next week. That's all we have on today's Path from Power from me, Matt Cooper. And, and for me, Ivan Cooper. <laughs> as, as, as Mario says, Cooper and Looper. <laughs> goodbye from me too. Goodbye. <laughs> 